Good morning, Gateway. It is great to be here this morning. Last week, we started a series called Good News, and the good news for you is I do not make $10 million. It's 9.8. So, uh, yeah, I wouldn't be driving a 2011 Toyota sedan if that were the case. Anyway, uh, we could all use some good news, though, right? Some of you, you got some good news this week that your power came back on. Woo-woo! Some of you, yeah. Some of you are still waiting for some good news about that, and, and we smell you. So, um, but we, we live in a world where we're so full of bad news. You know, it takes about two minutes of watching the news at night to know that, that there's a lot of bad news out there. It takes about 3.2 seconds of scrolling through social media to find out that there's a lot of bad news up, out there. So we could really use some good news. And actually, we really need the good news. Uh, that's, that's really what the gospel means. Gospel means good news. The good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is the amazing story of the sinless life, the, the powerful or sacrificial death and the powerful resurrection of the historically real person known as Jesus of Nazareth or Jesus the Christ. And this good news, as we said last week, it has the power to transform us as it brings salvation to our lives. We said last week that this good news really could be summarized or summed up in one word, and that word was love. And we said also that if you believe the gospel and obey it, but it's really not transforming your life, the way you live, every aspect of your life, then maybe you need to check again about what gospel you're believing in, because the way you live is what you believe. How you live is what you believe. So last week we talked about how the gospel transforms our life, particularly in the way that we love others. And so Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So Jesus said, as I have loved you. He modeled what it looked like to love others. So if the gospel is, is really what we believe, then it should permeate into everything that we do, even in how we love others, even in how we love others who don't agree with us, even in how we love others who are difficult to love. Because Jesus said we are known to be his disciples by the way we love one another. So today we want to talk about how this good news transforms our marriage. Now, I realize not everyone in here is married, but if you're not married, please don't tune me out, all right? You may be one day, and even, even if you never, ever marry or never marry again, these same principles apply to our other relationships. I love the story of the young single guy who got tired of the older women in this church always trying to set him up with, with a girl and uh, trying to get him married. Every time someone got married in the church, these older women would say to him, don't worry, you're next, you're next. And so he got so sick of it, so he came up with a plan to, to make sure that they would get off of his back. Every time that there was a funeral at the church, he would say to these older women, don't worry, you're next, you're next. So I realize, again, I realize that anytime we talk about marriage at church, it can kind of be a sensitive issue. Some of you, you've been divorced, and it may feel like I'm shaming you, or maybe you're, you're married to a non-Christian, and you feel like we're pointing out an ideal that just really isn't achievable. Or like I said earlier, maybe you, you never plan on getting married. Uh, you don't want to get married. But please know, First, we're not trying to shame anyone or make anyone feel bad or leave anyone out or be irrelevant to your life. 
And last week we talked again about loving others. And, and there were times where I was preaching that message and I felt ashamed of myself because I don't always live that out very well. I mess it up sometimes. I don't always treat others with the love that I should. But again, our goal isn't to shame. Our goal is to draw nearer to Jesus. Because Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform us. So as we draw near to him, he changes us. So before I go any further, I want to remind you of two truths about marriage. The first is this, that God designed marriage. God designed marriage. I know our culture tries to convince everyone that the Bible is this outdated book and that, that we've evolved past this antiquated teachings of this book. But let me remind you that the Bible is the word of our creator, our designer, our God. All scripture comes to us by the inspiration of God. It is what we call God-breathed. And marriage, marriage was God's idea. He alone sets the boundaries and the guidelines for it. He is the designer of it. The second truth is this. Disregard his counsel on marriage at your own peril. Bob Russell tells this story uh, about how there was this isolated European airfield and there was this small twin-engine plane getting ready to take off. But suddenly this lone figure came running out to the plane. There was a torrential rainstorm and he was running towards the, the plane and he got on board. And this man then had this brief but very heated exchange with the pilot. And then this man turned to the passengers and he said to them, Ladies and gentlemen, my name is Walter Beach. I'm the man who designed this aircraft. I know what it can and what it cannot do. And I do not think it is wise for you to fly in these kind of threatening conditions. I'm sure your trip is important and this isn't what you want to hear. But if I were you, I would leave. I would get off this plane and take the trip another time. Well, the pilot interrupted and he said, ladies and gentlemen, I have flown this plane for years and years. I know what it can do. I don't anticipate any problems, so please just stay on board. Well, of the handful of people that were on that plane, only one woman disembarked the plane with Mr. Beach. Minutes after takeoff, the plane crashed and it killed everyone on board. The woman who chose to leave the plane was a woman named Eleanor Roosevelt, who was the wife of the President of the United States. Her life was spared because she took the advice of the man who had designed and built the airplane. So what we teach you from God's word on marriage may fly in the face of pop culture and so-called experts, but we want to hear from the designer on this subject. So if we disregard God's word on marriage, well, we do so at our own risk, okay? So this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to turn to the book of 1 Peter. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, you can open up to 1 Peter. And uh, the verses on marriage are in chapter 3, But we're going to back up to chapter 2 to see why chapter 3 was written in the first place. So in 1 Peter 2, 9, Peter says this. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. He goes on, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so in these verses right here, Peter is is contrasting the people of God, those who believe in Christ, with those who don't believe. And this is really how the good news makes a difference in our lives. He's saying that those who believe in Christ, those who are, are in him, we no longer belong to the world. We belong instead to God. 
He says, we are his special possession, a people who have received mercy, a people who have been called out of this world and into his wonderful light for the purpose of praising him. And then he goes on in verses 11 and 12. He writes, dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles. So he's telling us that this world is not our home. If we are in Christ, this is not our home. As Christians, we are foreigners waiting here for our other home, our true home. So he says, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires which wage war against your soul. He goes on, he says, live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So as we believe and as we follow Christ and the gospel, it it has to make a difference in our lives. So much so that the world can see that we're different. It can see a difference in our lives, in the way that we relate to those in authority, in our relationships, in the way we love others, and even in our marriages. And so then Peter begins to flesh this out by by talking about areas where Christians should submit for the Lord's sake. He speaks of how the gospel impacts the way we submit to governmental authorities. And then he moves on to how Christians, Christian slaves, should submit to their earthly masters. Now, I realize that this may make some of you a little bit uncomfortable to think that the Bible talks so openly about slavery. Please understand, the Bible does not endorse slavery, okay? But it does speak to the reality of the situation that some people were in. And so Peter is talking to people who were suffering. They were suffering under cruel conditions from their government, and they were suffering under cruel conditions as slaves. And he's telling them, even in their suffering, even when they are wronged, to do good, to do what is right. Peter would tell those who are suffering down in verse 20, he says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He says, he committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled insults at him, he didn't retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So Peter reminds those who are suffering to maintain their integrity, to continue to live a life that has been transformed by the gospel, even in their suffering. And that if you suffer as a Christian, that you're in great company because you're following the example of Jesus. Although he committed no sin, he was unjustly insulted, punished, tried, beaten, and crucified. Jesus gave up his rights so that we could be forgiven. He knew that if he didn't do this for us, we would be without hope, lost for eternity. And then Peter concludes this chapter, chapter 2 in verse 25 saying, For you are like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So we were like sheep We'd gone astray, but now we're back with our shepherd. I love this one theologian said in the Old Testament that sheep died for the shepherd when the sheep were sacrificed in the temple. But in the New Testament, the shepherd willingly laid down his life for the sheep. 
So with that as our background, we then move into Peter's words on marriage in chapter 3. And I want you to notice that Peter will use this phrase in the same way, in the same way. He'll use that twice, once to wives and once to husbands. In verse 1, he said, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And in verse 7, he says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives. So what does this phrase, in the same way, mean? Like, what is it referring to? Well, it's, it's referring us back to chapter 2, what Peter had just talked about. It's referring us to Jesus. It's referring us to the fact that, that you and I have been called out of the world to be different. It's referring to how the good news makes a difference in our lives, even and especially in our marriages. You know, I do a, a decent amount of premarital counseling with my position. And over the years, I've been using this little booklet uh, called Journey to Oneness. Jeff Ranson had given it to me. It's kind of a great tool to use uh, with engaged couples. What I do is I give each of the, uh, the engaged couple, I give them each this little booklet. They get their own copy. And it has a bunch of questions in it for them to answer on different subjects. And they're to complete the chapters on their own, complete these questions on their own. And then they're supposed to talk about it together, talk about what their answers were and discuss it together. And then when we get back together for counseling, we go over some of the highlights. And so some of the questions, they, they seem very basic, but it really gets the couples communicating and verbalizing what they might assume the other person knows. Things like where we're going to live, how many kids do you want to have, who's going to pay the bills, how are chores going to be done, what church will we attend? You know, a lot of, of, of couples, they walk into a marriage thinking, well, you know, my parents did things this way. And so they assume that every couple does things that same way. And they have this uh, assumed expectation of their spouse. And so we talk a lot in, in premarital counseling about the baggage that we carry in and the expectations and the dreams that we bring into to marriage. And so we talk about how, how each person kind of walks in to a marriage with, with their own box, with their own box of expectations of, of, of what things are going to look like their own box of what dreams they have and how things are going to turn out, their own box of their own hopes and aspirations. And so what they do is they, they, they reach into that box, and you can tell that I have daughters because I have a pink Lego set here, and they, they, they have these expectations of what kind of house they're going to have, where they're going to live. They, they come in with these expectations of how many kids we're going to have, how we're going to raise those kids. And I cannot believe one of my daughters wore this. It's so small, right? They have these expectations that they bring in. They, they have this expectation of where we're going to go on, on vacations and how we're going to pay for that and what we're going to do on those vacations. They come in with these expectations of, of what we're going to do in our spare time together. Of course, we're going to watch Buckeye football together, right? <laughs> I <laughs> We, we come in with these expectations of who's going to do, do the chores around the house and, and how they're going to get done and how often. We have this expectation of whose house we're going to go to for Christmas, how we're going to spend the holidays, right? And we, we have this expectation of how we're going to fill our time, what we're going to do together in our time, how we're going to spend time. And we come in with these expectations of how many times a week or how many times a day we're going to 
have breakfast in bed, or whatever you kids are calling it these days, right? And so we have these expectations that we bring in, and we pack them into this box, and we bring them right into this marriage of ours. And what we've done is, whether we realize it or not, we, we, we've brought these, these goals, these aspirations, these dreams, these, these hopes into our marriage, and we've handed it to our spouse. But they don't see it as hopes and dreams and goals, aspirations. They see it as expectations, obligations. They see it as a giant to-do list. But the thing is, they, they got their own box too, right? And so conflict arises when I think we should live in a condo by the beach and she thinks that we should live next door to her parents. Tension mounts when I think that she should cook like my mama and she thinks I should wash the dishes without being asked. Battles are fought over where we're going to spend the holidays or how the kids should be punished when they do something wrong. Fights are prolonged because I am fighting for my rights. My dreams, my hopes, my expectations, my picture of what our marriage should look like. I'm fighting for my box. And Peter says, in the same way, wives, in the same way, husbands, in the same way, what? In the same way that Jesus bore our sins in his body on the cross and laid down his rights, his wants, his will for the will of the Father, we do the same for our spouses. Practically speaking, how does the good news transform our marriage? What does it look like? It looks like this, two words. Mutual submission. Mutual submission. Boy, I'm getting offensive now, aren't I? Right? <laughs> Submission is not a popular word, is it? We don't like to talk about submission, especially in marriage. But right off the bat, when Peter talks to wives about their marriage, he says, wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And this isn't the only time we read this in Scripture. The Apostle Paul would say in, in Ephesians 5.22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. And some of you husbands are going, you hear that? You hear that? Now, you have to understand, when Peter and Paul wrote those words at that time, this was not a controversial statement like it is today. When people in the first century heard Peter and Paul talk about wives submitting to their husbands, whereas we go, what? Like, that's, not, that's not politically correct. Whereas the world goes, huh? Paul and Peter's readers went, well, duh, right? Tell us something we don't know. This wasn't new information. This wasn't a big deal. This didn't surprise anyone. In fact, the women weren't even offended by this because the Romans and the Greeks, in the Roman and Greek world, and the Jewish culture had a version of this as well, but men in that culture had something that is referred to as patria potestis. Patria potestis. What this meant was that men had legal jurisdiction over their children and the man had legal jurisdiction over his wife. Essentially, the wives belonged to them. So when Peter and Paul said, wives, submit to your husbands, everyone is like, right, because if you don't, well, then the woman could be sold or traded or the husband could have them arrested. Of course, wives submit to their husbands. But what was actually so controversial 
was actually so appalling in the New Testament times is what Paul said before. He said, wives, submit to your own husbands. And what Peter said to husbands, Paul said, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And Peter said, husbands, in the same way, remember what Christ did for the church, for his people? In the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect. That's what was controversial. You mean you're saying that men and women are equal to God? You mean as a man, I'm not supposed to lord it over my wife? This was revolutionary to the people hearing this. This was humbling for men. In other words, the submission is mutual. It wasn't just wives submitting to their husbands, but husbands as well were to submit to their wives. Listen, we may have different roles in our relationship. We may have different responsibilities in our relationship. We may have different gifts and talents, but we do not have different value. And in the first century, this was unbelievable. And Jesus was the model of this. In the same way that Christ submitted his own wants and desires and wills to the Father, we submit to our spouses. We take this box full of our hopes and dreams and aspirations and we say, Honey, you don't owe me anything. How about we take a look at your box? So there is to be mutual submission in a marriage. Submission isn't surrender. It is acknowledgement of God's order in the family and an understanding of one another and what we can bring and share in a marriage. So let's, let's read what Peter says first to wives then. He starts off by saying, Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Now, I hope this is obvious to you. If, if you are single and you are a Christian, you are only to date and marry someone who else who is a Christian. I hope that's obvious to you. The Bible talks clearly about that. And when I say Christian, I don't mean that they label themselves as Christian on a dating profile, but there's no evidence that Jesus has actually changed them. We are not to be unequally yoked. That's what the Bible talks about, being unequally yoked. We are not to be that way. But Peter is saying, if you are married to an unbeliever, well, we're not going to change that now. Or if you were an unbeliever when you got married and you married an unbeliever and then you became a Christian, but they're still an unbeliever, you continue to model a life that is transformed by the gospel in hopes that you win your spouse over. So Peter goes on and he says, Now your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands. So he's saying, work more on beauty that will never fade rather than outward appearance that's just going to eventually fade. And then Peter reiterates this command for wives to submit to their husbands. And this time he gives an example. He says, like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord, 
You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Now, earlier I said that husbands and wives have equal value, right? But that doesn't mean that, that, that we aren't different. Obviously, we're, men and women are different physically. But, but they're also different emotionally and mentally. But one difference that isn't talked about very much is that men and women are different in their roles assigned to them by God. And again, this isn't very popular, but since God is the designer of marriage, we, we look to him. And so one of the assigned roles for men is that they are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the home. Again, I know that flies in the face of our culture, but men are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the home. And I truly believe one of the biggest reasons the world is in the mess that we are in is because men have not stepped up and they have not been leading their families spiritually. And there's some significant data to support that claim. We, we just don't have time to get into it. You know, I, I saw a lot of people posting on Facebook over Valentine's Day about their Valentine story. And they were answering like the survey questions about their relationship. Like one of them was like, who said I love you first? Uh, who falls asleep first? I, I read some of yours. Um, and so I, I didn't post one of these because I, I don't post very often. But Sarah and I, we went through one of those surveys just for fun one evening. And one of the questions was, who wears the pants in your relationship? And my answer as I thought about that was, well, I think... Each of us occupy a leg of the pants, uh, but it, when it comes down to it, at the very end, I, I zip them, right? I zip the pants. As the spiritual leader of our household, and as a husband who mutually submits to my wife, we talk over decisions. We listen to one another. We pray over decisions. I ask her what she wants, and then I take her thoughts, her desires, her wisdom, which is really great, her strong wisdom. I take that into strong consideration before making the final decision. Peter gives us the example of how Sarah obeyed Abraham and submitted to him. Again, I know this flies in the face of culture. And, and some of you are thinking, well, you know, some of your women are thinking, my, my husband isn't worth submitting to. And you know what, ladies? I actually did a deeply scientific study to determine the percentage of men who are worth submitting to. And here's what I discovered. 100% of them are not worth submitting to. They're not worthy of it. They aren't. None are. But 100% of women aren't worth submitting to either. Because we are all sinful. But we follow the design of our designer. And this is how the gospel transforms us. It is no longer about me then. So after six verses of talking to wives... Peter then gives one sentence to the husbands. Sounds about right considering our attention span. Uh, he writes this in verse 7. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And this passage is so offensive, isn't it? Another knock, right? Peter is now calling women the weaker partner. What does this mean? Well, weaker doesn't mean what you're actually thinking it means. Weaker in this passage actually means more delicate, more precious of the two. Handle with care. Weaker does not mean wuss. Because let's face it, 
Women can handle a whole lot more pain than men. Like men, we are, we are down and out for like eight days when we get the sniffles. And men, they're going to work, they're cleaning the house, they're taking care of the kids while they have 105 degree fever. They're battling shingles, chills, sweats, smallpox, appendicitis, COVID. They're nine months pregnant and they have scurvy. I don't even know what scurvy is, but they can handle it, no problem. I think of pirates, sorry. <laughs> What this means is that husbands and wives are equal in value to God, but wives are more precious in care. It's like when I was growing up, my, my family would, would, when we would have company, things would be a little bit different, right? Like normally without company, we would pull out the everyday sturdy, like you can drop it on the floor, who cares about it, dishes. It didn't matter if it broke. But when company came out, what did mama do? She pulled out the fine china, gently stored in the china cabinet, the kind that if you broke it, mom would cry for two months because her great-great-grandmother brought them over to America on the Mayflower, right? <laughs> Men are to be considerate of women. Handle them with care, with consideration, because they're like fine china, precious and delicate. Peter then says that men are to treat their wives with respect, not just as the weaker partner, but also as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life. So men are to remember that, that women are co-heirs of this gracious gift of life, that Jesus died for all, men and women. So, so the different functions and different distinctions between genders really are only for this age. Women will have an equal share in the new age, and even now they experience the, the grace of God equally with men. But men must remember that selfishness and egotism in the marriage relationship will not just mar their relationship with their spouse, but Peter lets them know that it's going to mar their relationship with God. Peter writes in this instruction to men uh, about, about their wives and how they're to treat them. And he says this at the end, so that nothing will hinder your prayers, so that nothing will come between you and God. If you're treating them awful, if you're not respecting them, if you're not mutually submitting to them, it not just affects you and your wife, it affects you and God. Peter's point is that husbands need to give up their selfish pursuits. They need to put away their box and consider the greater needs of the family and of the marriage. In the same way, that Jesus thought about the family of God and put us weak humans first when he went to the cross. And when a husband does this, when a husband's life is transformed by the gospel, when there is mutual submission, when the husband is being considerate of the wife and showing respect to her, no wife has a problem with submitting to the leadership of that type of man. So it's all about mutual submission because Jesus gave up his rights for us. He owed us nothing, but he gave up his rights for us. This is how the good news transforms our lives and this is how the good news transforms our marriages. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that, that we can look to the example of Christ his love, his submission to you, his desire for what is best for us. And God, if we take that into our marriages, it is transforming. So God, I pray that we would 
look to Jesus. That we would follow this good news and that it would transform our lives. It would transform the way we love others. It would transform our relationships. It would transform our marriages. God, my prayer that is, that, is that, that the marriages that are represented at this church, marriages at Gateway, from this day on, would be a model to our community. It would be a model for others to see because they're modeling Christ's love for the church. And so God, I, I thank you that though you owed us nothing, you gave us everything. God, this is how the gospel transforms us. The good news that, that you have done the work for us should permeate into our lives and everything that we do. So God, I pray that the gospel would do its work in our lives, that you would transform us. God, I, I pray for the marriages that, that are hitting some rough spots, that are on the rocks, where there's some problems going on, where there's maybe some need for forgiveness, there's some need for some mutual submission, that they would look to you. And, and though there may be this feeling that the other spouse did something wrong or isn't meeting my needs or isn't doing this for me, that I would come in with the attitude that, that they owe me nothing. That we would have a, a submission competition to see who can out-submit the other. And that we would model the love that you have for us, even in our marriages. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. And so as we said last week, the gospel of Jesus Christ always, always, always demands a response. What do you do with the good news of Jesus? What do you do with the work that he has done for you? And the, the biblical response is that we believe in Jesus. We believe in what he has done for us. We believe in his crucifixion and resurrection. We believe in his word. And then we submit to his lordship by confessing him as Lord, repenting of our sin, sin meaning we're heading in one direction and it's, repent just means a turn away from that and a turning to something. We turn away from our life of sin and we turn to Jesus. And then we follow through with baptism, identifying with Jesus in his death and his burial and also in his resurrection. And then we live a life that is being transformed daily by the gospel. And so if you have a decision to make about Jesus or you just need some prayer this morning, I'm going to be up here to your right as we sing this last song. I'd love to talk with you about that. Will you stand and sing?